please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, and we're going to be, uh, Lord willing, uh, finishing up the first section of the book of Acts. Remember, the first section of the book of Acts deals with laying the foundations for what the church is and the things that are true of the church in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts are things that are always true of the church. The church always has a, a mission, the church has a witness, the church has power, the church has the Holy Spirit, the church, as we see here, has, has martyrs. And so the goal is to, to finish up this first section of the book of Acts this week, and then, is, then to take a couple weeks and look at Matthew chapter 1 and talk about Jesus' sonship, both his human and his divine sonship. And we're going to kind of begin the next section of Acts in 2021, Lord willing. Now, if you say, look, Daniel, it's, it's December, I need a Christmas message, just a real quick edit you can do. The title of this morning for you is, The Temple is Fulfilled in Christ at Christmas. Okay, that'll, that'll help you maybe as we think about moving into the Christmas. It is a great passage that helps us understand uh, Christmas as well in the Incarnation. And again, for those of you who are joining us via live stream, we miss you. Uh, we know that many people are not feeling well now uh, from various things, and we pray that uh, you're able to, to join us again soon uh, and be able to participate in, in body life as, as the Lord allows. So again, just know that you are missed and loved. As you turn here to Acts chapter 7, and we're finishing Stephen's speech Remember what's taken place. Stephen has been accused of speaking against the law, Moses, and speaking against the temple. And so he is he's showing oh, the, the promise, the law, and Moses' ministry, and the temple all point to Christ. And we're coming to that last section of his sermon, or his, his message to his accuser, saying, no, my preaching the gospel is not diminishing the temple. In fact, you have a wrong understanding of the temple. The temple actually points to the Messiah, whose, whose ministry I am proclaiming, and you're missing it, as did your forefathers before you. So if you would, if you're able to, please stand with me as we look at the end of Stephen's speech, beginning in verse 44 as we're talking about the tabernacle and then later the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, and so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Father, we would ask 
that we would just not be encouraged by your word, but we would be changed. We pray that you'd be glorified uh, through our time together here. Help our, our hearts to, to be able to uh, play cl- pay close attention to your word. Help us not to be uh, like those in Stephen's audience who do not receive it, but help us to receive it, to taste it, to chew on it, to meditate and dwell upon it, and to be changed for your glory. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. When I walk through the, the house of, of someone famous, I, I sometimes get a, a sense that I, I know them a, a little bit better. Maybe, maybe you've had that experience as well. I can remember when I was in junior high, my dad took my brother and I to Washington, D.C. And on the way to Washington, D.C., we stopped at Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, and Mount Vernon, the, the home of George Washington. And my, my dad was especially just really fascinated at how the two homes were, were different and reflected the personalities of the people who had lived there. So you go to Monticello, and, and there's Jefferson, and his, his creative genius are kind of kind of on display, just the, the gadgets everywhere and just that, that bustling creativity. You see that as you go to his home. And as you, you go to Mount Vernon, you see a, George Washington and his desire for a, a tranquil, a more, more peaceful life. Uh, wasn't able to enjoy uh, Mount Vernon very long, but you, you see his personality is revealed in, in what he was trying to create there. So you go to the house of someone and you, you gain some insights into the, you don't, it's not them, that the house isn't them, but you, you gain some insights into who they are. Now the temple, of course, is, is a little bit different. The temple doesn't contain God in the same way that a house contains a person. God doesn't li- didn't live in the temple like you and I live in a house. He didn't live in the tabernacle before that, the same way that you and I live in a house. He doesn't, a house doesn't no building is able to contain God or contain his glory, but the purpose of the temple was, was actually to, to point us to some things about Christ and, and who he is and who God is. The, the temple was designed to reveal to us truths about the Messiah. Now, as we encounter Stephen's speech here, it, it might be a little bit confusing. You might say, okay, uh, is Stephen pro-temple or anti-temple? He, he seems to be saying some, some negative things here. What, what is Stephen's view of the temple here? Now, I, th- I think Stephen would tell us what, what I'm saying here, that the temple was a good thing. It was given to the people by God, and the temple was designed to, to teach us some things about God, specifically some things about the Messiah. However, Stephen's accusers had fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of the temple. Instead of seeing the temple as something that, that points us to God, something that, that compels and helps us understand more things about God to, to compel us to worship, the, the people that are accusing Stephen actually begun to, to worship the temple. And so Stephen comes along, and Stephen is saying, look, he's helping people turn their attention away from the temple to the one to whom the temple is supposed to be pointing, and the people get very upset about that. You're attacking the temple. No, no, I'm helping you understand the true purpose of the temple is what Stephen is saying. So, let's not make the mistake of Stephen's accusers. Let's look at the temple and understand rightly who Jesus is. As we go through this, our our goal, of course, would be to treasure Christ. In fact, here's kind of the main thing, the main idea that I want us to, to think about together this morning. 
we who are in Christ are, are part of God's true temple. As we look at the, the temple here and see it pointing to Christ, those of us who are united with Christ through faith are now, are now also part of the true temple. And my goal as we go through Stephen's message here would be that we would treasure Christ more deeply as we look at the temple and that we would treasure God's people more deeply as well, that we have a greater appreciation for those of us who are part of the temple of God through faith in his son, Jesus. So, three statements that I want us to think through to help us understand this this morning. Here's, here's the first one from Stephen's message here. First of all, the temple did not and could not contain God and his glory. Stephen's accusers are very fixated upon the temple, and Stephen, as he begins to talk about the temple, is going to say, look, guys, the temple was, was never the thing that was being worshipped. The, the temple did not and, and could not contain the glory of God. He's going to talk about how worship occurred before the temple was built and how the people understood worship before the temple was built. That the worship was not centered just upon the, the building of the temple when the temple was built, and it wasn't centered on the temple after the building of the temple was built. And so look, look at the text with me here. So the temple did not and could not contain the God in his glory. You don't worship this building. And, and look what he says, and let's begin in verse 44. In fact, by verse 44, I mean verse 43, a little bit of context there. Remember, he's just accused them of idolatry. He says, you took up the tent of, of Moloch. And then so they, they practice idolatry. Then he comes into verse 44. And again, he's talking about, look, even before the temple was built, verse 44, he says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. That's, that's the tabernacle. The tent of witness refers to that, that place where the, the, it was testifying to God. And he's talking there about the stone tablets that were these, these tablets of testimony. He says, this is, this is what we had before the temple. And it says that this, this tabernacle that he calls the tent of witness in the wilderness before the, the temple was built, this, this tabernacle was built just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. So remember in Exodus 25, God gives Moses some instructions about how the, the tabernacle is to be built. He says in verse 9 of Exodus 25, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Later in Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to learn from the writer of Hebrews that the tabernacle was made according to this pattern to serve as a, a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. So before the temple is built, there's a tabernacle, this, this temple that Stephen's accusers are very worked up about. Before that temple even existed, there was a tabernacle that God gave his people. And God's people understood that the tabernacle didn't contain the fullness of God and his glory. It was, a, it was a pattern. It was an example to point them to God and his glory. In fact, Moses, remember later in the book of, Mo, of Exodus, Moses will say, God, God, show me the, the fullness of who you are. And God said, you know, I, I can't even do that. You know, Moses understood that no building could contain God. No building could, could, could box him in. Now, Stephen goes on. He says, beginning in verse 46, he talks about the, the timing of the, the building of the temple. In fact, well, verse 45, 
finish that up. They, they, there's a time of wandering in the wilderness, and then the people come in, they dispossess the nations, and they bring that tabernacle with them. Then you come into the time of the temple being built, the end of verse 45, until the days of David. And David found favor in the sight of God, and he asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So there's this time where the temple is actually built. Now, whenever the temple was built, at that time as they dedicated the temple and had the temple and the, the replacing the tabernacle, did the people at that time believe that that was a building that contained God and contained the fullness of his glory? Well, no. In fact, think about 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, there's this beautiful picture of the glory of God being manifested in the house of the Lord. But Solomon, as he, as he sees the, the beauty of the glory of God being manifest in a special way at that place, he still understands that temple doesn't contain God himself. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon's praying his prayer of dedication. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? The answer, of course, is no. The fullness of God isn't just found on earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. built. All of heaven can't contain God, much less uh, one physical location here on earth. Now, Stephen goes on. He goes into verse 48. He says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And now he's quoting the prophet Isaiah after the temple has been built. Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? There's nothing that you and I can can take and, and build that hasn't come from God. The idea that you and I could, could somehow fashion or create a place in which God himself and his fullness could dwell is, is ludicrous. The temple, Stephen is saying, this is is what he's saying to his people that are accusing him, the temple did not, the temple could not contain God and his glory. His accusers are are involved in in idolatry. They're they're worshiping this this building. What's, What's the implication for you and me? The temple did not and could not contain the glory of God. What's the implication? Here's, here's what I think is a, an important implication for us. Physical things and, and even ideas can easily be substituted for God as the objects of our worship. It's, it's very easy for us to take physical things or even to take ideas, even ideas about God that, that are wrong and replace true worship of God. We can take these physical things, we can take these wrong ideas about God, and we can replace God in, in our worship. Those, those wrong ideas, those things can, can take the place of God in our worship. Now, kind of two thoughts to think about as we think about what that means. One, God and God alone must be the object of our worship. God and God alone must be the object of our worship. And two, God and and his beauty must be the only motivation for our worship. We cannot be motivated to worship by something that isn't about God's, God's value and his preciousness and his beauty. God must be the only object of 
our worship, and, and it's only a contemplation of God and his beauty and his value that should motivate my heart to worship. And brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, we have to be careful constantly that we aren't drawn into idolatry by, by forgetting one of those two things. So for example, it's easy for me to begin to think wrong thoughts about God and the object of my worship can suddenly become not God. I have a false understanding of some aspects of his attributes or who he is and, and characteristics. And so I begin to worship this idea of God that has replaced the true God. Or I can be, my heart can be moved and motivated by things that aren't God and his beauty and his glory. And so I, I'm being compelled to worship for idolatrous reasons. But there's idolatrous motivations as I engage in worship. God must be the only object of my worship. And the beauty and the value and the, the treasure of God must be my only motivation within my heart for worship. That's, of course, a constant struggle. Let me just give you some cautions, some, some examples here of ways that we can violate this, similarly to, I think, the ways in which Stephen's accusers violate this. And, and for different ones of us, exactly how these things play out are going to be different, but, but just mull some of these things over with me. One example might be this. A person might say, you know, for me to really worship God, I need a, I need a building. And, and I, need it, I need the building. For me to really be able to worship God on a Sunday morning, the building has to look a certain way. I need a certain color scheme. I need there to be a certain type of music at a certain tempo. I need the, um, I need a, a, the, the pulpit to be at a certain spot in the center of the stage, on the side of the stage. It needs to have some sort of ornamentation on it. And the, the, the pastor needs to be wearing this and that. And what, so what, what am I doing? I'm saying that the things that motivate my heart for worship are not the contemplation of God and his beauty. I'm saying the things that motivate my heart to worship are, are some external things, some non some things that aren't even about God and his value and his treasure and his beauty. Another example might be this. I might, I might need to be careful about reading more books about the Bible and God than actually just reading the Bible. I, I become so enthralled with a, a theological system that a man has developed or a woman has developed, and, and I become so enthralled with that theological system that it, it replaces my understanding of who God is. And, and there may be some good things about God in that, but there may be some things that are wrong, and I'm, I'm not carefully comparing it to Scripture. I'm not striving to have a right understanding of God based upon Scripture. And in fact, as I counter the true God of Scripture, it messes with my theological system. I, I default to my theological system, so I have to be careful. I'm just, ca just cautioning you. You need to be careful with that as well. Or a person might say, you know, um, I, 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 I just find myself worshiping best when I'm out in nature. And now that can be good at times, right? I, I'm outside, it's, it's the evening, and I look up and I see the, the vastness of the universe, and I say, man, God is the, the God who created the vastness of the universe as I contemplate the vastness of the universe. What an amazing God. That, that can be a good thing, but it can also come into idolatry, right? Romans 1 talks about this. It is very, very easy for you and I to look at, at the creation and to begin to worship the creation rather than the creator, the temple did not and could not contain God in his glory. No star, no, no tree, no cloud can contain the fullness of God in his glory. We have to watch our hearts very carefully. Now, here, here's another one. This is one I'm going to get the most uh, uh, kind emails about probably. But I would encourage people to be very careful about artistic representations of God, particularly of, of Jesus and his work. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we watch a uh, a movie about Jesus, or we read a story about Jesus, and 
there can be some good and helpful things in that, but sometimes there can be some wrong thoughts about Jesus, or there can be a, a physical a depiction of Jesus that can kind of get in our minds and we begin to, it can begin to, to mess with, with our right understanding of who Jesus is, potentially, right? Maybe I, I'm watching a, a movie and this, this movie kind of fills in some of the gaps of Jesus' life and I, it begins it'd be hard for me to understand, okay, now which, was, which stuff is from the Bible and what stuff is from the movie? Or, or I, I, I watch a, a movie or a television show about Jesus by a very gifted writer and director and they, they, kind, of, they kind of create some dramatic license there and, and, and there's a dramatic moment and my heart is moved to, to worship. And my heart isn't worshiped to necessarily be moved by the truth of who Jesus is. My heart is moved to worship based upon the, the, the dramatic emotion I'm feeling from the story that's, that's not necessarily a biblical story. I'm not trashing all, you know, all, all whatever. I'm, I'm just saying be careful. And I'm saying for me, I have a very hard time watching a, a physical depiction of, of Jesus just because it gets in my mind. That, that picture of whoever actor is playing Jesus, it just, it just kind of messes with me. I don't want to pray and think of Jim uh, Caviezel uh, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm praying, right? He's a nice guy, I'm sure, but he's not Jesus. It's idolatry, potentially. Just saying be careful. Just saying to, to be cautious, be careful. I would say this, it is better, usually, it's better to have the absence of, absence of information about Jesus, especially if the Bible's left something out. It's better to have the absence of some information about Jesus or God than the, the presence of, of wrong information. So, for example, I, I don't need to know all the details of Jesus' early life. It's better for me not to have the things that Scripture hasn't revealed to me than for me to kind of have some wrong ideas about what Jesus did as a kid and, and begin to worshiping that perception of Jesus instead. I've said more than I need to there. The, the main point is this. The caution is this. We need to watch ourselves. We need to watch ourselves because here Jesus, uh, uh, Stephen's accusers don't recognize Jesus when he comes because they've, they've missed, as they look at the temple, they begin to worship the temple instead of worshiping the God to whom the temple points. You say, okay, well, if the, the temple couldn't contain God, if the temple couldn't contain the glory of God, what, what was the point? Why, why did the temple even exist? Here's, here's the second statement I want you to think about with me. The temple points us to Christ, the true temple in whom the fullness of deity bodily dwells. The temple was designed to point us to Christ. You know, as we've been talking about this speech by Stephen, we've been talking a lot about types. I think I used that word a few weeks ago. The word types is, is a word that Scripture uses. Romans 5, Adam, Paul tells us is a type of Christ. That word type, as we encounter it in Scripture, means something in the Old Testament that points us to something better and fuller in the New Testament, something better and fuller in Jesus. So, for example, Joseph is a, a type of Jesus. He, he's, he's not Jesus, but there's some things about Joseph's life that, that point us to Jesus. The, the temple is not Jesus, but the temple is a type of Jesus. It's a pattern, it's an example that reveals some truths about Jesus that were designed to, to be like a prophetic pointing to, to Jesus. I went into my daughter's room a few weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now, and uh, she, was, she was doing some sewing, and she had a, a pattern laid out. I said, 
what is that thing? And she goes, well, it's, it's a pattern, Dad. It's a, a pattern of a hat. I said, I don't think that's going to ever become a hat. She goes, no, 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 it's going to become a hat. Here's, here's, what it, here's what this looks like, and here's what this, this is going to do, and you cut this out, and you sew this together. And, go, and sure enough, that pattern she used to, to make a hat. That pattern is not a hat. You can't wear the pattern. But the pattern reveals some things about what the hat is going to look like and what it's going to be, its purpose. The same here is a, true of the temple. The temple is, is a type. It points people to the fullness that's going to be realized in Jesus. Let's listen to a couple of passages where we see this. First of all, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that, that God's desire was not just to have a temple. There was, there was a desire for a greater dwelling with his people. The, the temple was a place where the, God's glory was manifested in a special but a limited way, where people could interact with God through the ministry of the priests, but it pointed to something better. For example, Zechariah chapter 2 in verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord Yahweh in that day and shall be my people. So he's describing here a, a greater joining together with God himself, and I will dwell in your midst. Now, now how can that take place? How can people dwell with God without a physical building? Well, we see that in Jesus Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 will talk about the temple. He says, look, something greater than the temple is here. In John chapter 1 verse 14, what does John tell us? John says, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is the same word for, for tabernacle. It's, it's, it's Jesus is this, this tabernacle, this, this visible manifestation of, of God. He is where God himself dwells. The fullness of God dwells within Jesus. In fact, Jesus' identity of himself with the temple and talking about how the, the temple is going to be destroyed and Jesus will restore it in three days, that uses that, 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 that teaching that Jesus gives to, to show that he's the true temple, his accusers are going to use against him at his trial, right? This guy said he's going to destroy the temple. Stephen's accusers are using it against him here at this meeting of the Sanhedrin. What will Jesus tell the woman at the well? John chapter 4 as they talk about where people can worship God, Jesus is going to tell the woman of the well, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Because Jesus himself is going to be the true temple in which people can be joined and encounter the presence of God and engage in worship. What happens in Matthew chapter 27? In Matthew chapter 27, as Jesus dies, what happens in the temple? It says in Matthew 27, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Why? There's no longer a need for this physical building because Jesus himself is the true temple to whom the building pointed. Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus is the one to whom the temple points, the true temple in whom the fullness of deity bodily dwells. Now you look at verses 51 through 53 here, and, and what does Stephen say as he finishes his speech? He, he's telling them, just like your forefathers missed it, 
just as God revealed type after type to them, and they, they rejected Joseph, and they rejected Moses, and they rejected the law, and they rejected the temple, that's, that's where you are as well. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, your hearts haven't been transformed, you haven't responded to the, to the gospel, you resist the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did so to you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. The law, the temple, all these things were pointing to Christ, you missed it, you rejected it, you've turned your heart away from the gospel. The temple was designed to point people to Christ, the true temple in whom the fullness of deity bodily dwells, through whom we can have a relationship with God. The temple was designed to point us to Jesus, the one in whom we can have access to God himself. Now, what's the implication for us as we think about the temple here? Here's the implication that I would encourage you to think about. There is no other means through which we can come to the Father, except through the Son. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the one to whom we can, can turn and be in a relationship with God. In fact, and here's, here's the beautiful thing, Jesus isn't just the, the possible means through which we can have a relationship with God. Jesus desires us to have a relationship with the Father through him and a relationship with himself. I think I've mentioned before I'm reading this, this amazing book called Gentle and Lowly by uh, Dane Ortland. And I think one of the things I love most about the book is just the subtitle. It has one of the best subtitles of a book ever. The, su the subtitle is this, The Heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And in one of the chapters, Ortland gives this illustration of a, a compassionate, wealthy doctor. He says, imagine there's a compassionate, wealthy doctor who, who comes to a, a, a group in the jungle and he has the, the cure for this contagious disease. And he, he, he's come here to, to help these, these people be healed. And the people reject him at first. And, and then a, a few brave souls come to him for treatment. And he treats them and they get better. And then more and more come to him. He says, now imagine how does that doctor feel as people come to him for treatment? Is that doctor annoyed? No, that, that's the whole reason the doctor came in the first place. And, and then Orland says this. He talks about how the doctor feels this joy. Similarly, Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewal, pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's why Jesus came. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Brothers and sisters, we need to believe that God desires to be in relationship with us. Christ, as we come to him for forgiveness, does not say, oh, come on, guys, this is just, this is getting old, fine, that this is the last time, I'm warning you. What does Jesus desire? Jesus desires to forgive and heal and restore as we come to him in our, in our sin and our suffering and our emptiness and saying, God, I, I am nothing without you. I, I need 
your forgiveness. I, I need a relationship with you. Jesus is the true temple. The temple is just to, to point us to Christ in whom we can find forgiveness and healing and life. Here's the third statement I want us to think about then. Therefore, those of us who are united with Christ through faith are part of the true temple of God. Those of us who are united with Christ through faith are part of the temple of God. This, this is an amazing thing. The temple isn't the object we worship. The temple is, is what we become a part of as we become united with Christ through faith. Now, a, a couple of implications or kind of two statements as we think about that. One, the people, the people of God who are in Christ are collectively the temple of God. So, in other words, we're not just, we're, we're not just um, united with Christ. We're united with Christ together. And so collectively, we become part of the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would say this, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. So in other words, we as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, as we're united with Christ through faith, because of his work on the cross, as the Holy Spirit draws us to him, we place our faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? We collectively become the dwelling place of God. We're part of that, of, of what the earthly temple pointed to. It, it's miraculous. And, and the second thing to think about is not just are we part of the temple collectively, but those of us, the people of God who are in Christ through faith, are individually part of the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6 Paul would say, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? As individuals, we are also temples of God, part of the temple of God. Now, now just a couple implications here as we close. A couple impl implications. One... Um, the church is a precious thing. The, the church universal is, is a precious thing, but, but the local expression of the body of Christ is a precious thing. The church is worth giving your life for. One of the, the main goals of my ministry is for people to, to grasp the, the beauty of the church and, and to treasure her. And the beauty of the church is not based upon the, the, the goodness of us as individuals. The, the goodness, I mean, we know each other, right? <laughs> you say, okay, I understand that the church is a precious thing, but I also know myself really well, my friends. I mean, are we that precious? The preciousness of the church is not, not based upon our inherent goodness. The, church, the preciousness of the church is not based upon the, the charisma of any of the pastors, in case you're under that delusion. I've seen some laughter already there. <laughs> it's fair. You know, it's not the, that's not the, the preciousness of the church isn't based on that. The, the preciousness of the church is, is based on the reality that God himself dwells within this body. 
before we gossip, before we malign one another, before we think wrong thoughts of each other, before we criticize one another, man, just be careful. We do not want to do anything to, to damage the unity of this, this church in which God himself dwells. Not because we're a perfect church, but because God is a perfect and holy God and has brought us into relationship with him through the true temple, Jesus. And as we're united in him through faith, collectively we become part of the true temple. Treasure the church. It's a precious thing. Second implication here would be that we who are the, the church collectively as the temple need to pursue corporate holiness. We need Protecting the, the unity of the church doesn't mean we don't call out sin or don't ask other people to call out our sin. We need to be pursuing holiness because God himself dwells here. 1 Peter chapter 2, you're a royal uh, sorry, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, with a purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If that's the reality, if, if Bethany Community Church consists of people who have been called out of darkness into light, we want to live like that, not for our own self-aggrandizement, but because we want to reflect the beauty, the value of God as we ought. And then finally, a final implication here, because we're, as, as individuals, the temple of God. We want to pursue individual holiness. As individuals, we want to be pursuing holiness. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Look, don't, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body. When it comes to how we live, when it comes to how we think, when it comes to the things we're bringing into our minds and the things we're doing with our physical bodies, we want God to be glorified. These physical bodies are no longer our own. God himself dwells within them. What an incredible motivation for holiness. We've, we've talked about the ending of, of chapter 7 before, but Stephen says these things and they his audience does not respond with, with faith and repentance. They're, they're enraged. They grind their teeth. And, and he uh, sees, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And they, they, we know how the story ends with them stoning him. And Stephen, is, as they stone him, calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said, had said this, he fell asleep. And there with his death, the first martyr of the church, we, we kind of come to a conclusion of the first part of the book of Acts. The, the foundation has been laid. But now, despite the accusations and the actions of, of his accusers, the building of the church continues. The foundation has been laid and the building of the true temple of God continues through the book of Acts. And we, who are part of Christ, are part of that same story and part of God's true temple through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that we would be the, the temple that you have created us to be. We pray that through our First of all, our understanding of you, we would, we would worship you rightly. We would not uh, practice idolatry. We have a right conception of who you are. Continue to, to help us correct wrong thoughts and, and help us to be 
motivated and compelled to worship by nothing other than you and your, your beauty and your glory. And then as we come together, help us to, to view your church as a precious thing to treasure, not because of our own inherent worth, but because of the worth of you, God himself, dwelling within your church because we've been united with your Son, in whom the fullness of deity bodily dwells. We pray that as individuals, you'd help us to turn from sin, from sexual immorality, from love of material things, from wrong uh, heart attitudes, from uh, contentiousness, from slander, from all those, those things that our flesh would crave. Help us to turn from them and turn to your Son, Jesus, in whom we find life and forgiveness. We pray this in his name. Amen.